The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba. July 1st marks the 20th anniversary when Great Britain handed Hong Kong back to China. In this edition, Breaking Views editors and columnists from Asia will discuss the ex-colonial city's relation to the mainland over the past two decades and what's in store going forward. Here are our colleagues in Asia. Hello, Views Room listeners. Welcome to Hong Kong. I'm Pete Sweeney, Asia editor of Breaking Views here, and I'm excited for my first all-Asia edition of the Views Room podcast. To those of you not following the news quite as closely as we do here, Hong Kong is celebrating its 20th anniversary of reunification with the Chinese mainland under an arrangement called One Country, Two Systems. That means that Hong Kong got to keep, for the most part, its legal system and some of the political freedoms, including the freedom of speech, vigorous uh, debate over politics. China's President Xi Jinping was just in town over the weekend uh, joining the party. He uh, stood with, uh, well, him and uh, Chief Executive Carrie Lam, who was just elected, um, launched a new market initiative uh, this weekend, uh, linking Hong Kong to China's $9 trillion bond market called Bond Connect. This is the latest in a string of uh, new financial pilots that, that Beijing has kind of rolled out here. He was also here uh, to congratulate the government for its work, you know, work against uh, this kind of nascent independence movement here. There's been a lot of political tension in, in Hong Kong. Uh, so it just started in 2014. There were these massive pro-democracy protests called the Umbrella Movement by some. Anyways, we just commemorated the handover with a special edition. You can find it online on our website. Uh, there's a special tab called Hong Kong, and if you click on that, you'll see uh, stuff that I wrote, and you'll see stuff that these other columnists I'm here wrote. I've got Asia finance editor Quentin Webb. I've got Robin Mock, a Hong Kong native who covers technology, among other things, for us. Uh, Katrina Hamlin, who was also born here, in fact who writes about clean and green policy in general, among other things. And I've got Lisa Yuka, who comes to us from the news side. She was covering financial services in Hong Kong for, for a couple of years before she joined us here as a columnist. So I'm very excited to talk to them because I'm the newcomer. I just moved to Hong Kong. I was spent the last nine years in mainland China, so this is a very kind of new environment for me. And it's been very interesting watching the contrast. So I'm going to start off by asking all the people here who uh, have been here longer and have maybe better uh, perspective, you know, since 20 years and in, in the past couple of years, you know, what has changed in Hong Kong and, and what is still the same? I'm going to take let uh, Quentin take the first swing. What do you think? Well, the piece I wrote specifically on this was about Hong Kong's economy, and I think there are two important things to say there. One is that, in general, the economy has become less dynamic, and the second is that, for a long time, Hong Kong has carved out this rather lucrative niche kind of connecting China to the world, acting as a middleman. And some of that role is also under threat at the moment now, too. How so? Well, so, for example, the supply chains are being disintermediated. So previously, people would come to Hong Kong companies like Li and Fung and use them to organize their relationship with mainland factories. Increasingly, people are cutting those middlemen out and going straight to the source. Um, tourists used to have to fly through Hong Kong and use Cafe Pacific. Uh, increasingly now you can fly directly using mainland airlines from big cities on the mainland. Hong Kong used to be the kind of first port of call for Chinese tourists when they wanted to go and buy 
new handbags or see a different part of the world. Now increasingly they're going straight to Seoul or to Paris or to Tokyo. And the ports, which used to be the world's biggest container shipping port until uh, about a dozen years ago, is now much less important. Mainland ports in Shanghai and elsewhere have risen up and overtaken it in terms of the volume that's processed there. Do we think that the government has like a plan for kind of reinventing the Hong Kong economy? I know, you know, my casual impression here is that everybody I meet works for the finance industry or when people ask me what it's like, it's, you know, again, not having been there much, but it's, it's like being in New York with just Wall Street, you know, that there's just this one part of the economy that's really driving everything else. But I know that, you know, the government is making all these noises about innovation and so on and so forth. Robin, what's your take in terms of like, covering technology and you go to Shenzhen and talk to these guys. I mean, is this is this government uh, ready for the next phase of Hong Kong or? Well, I mean, Hong Kong has um, the advantages of being, you know, an international financial center. Um, so you have all the big banks here. Um, the problem is that, you know, typically these legacy banks are quite slow to innovate. So if you look at, for example, fintech adoption, you know, it's far behind in Hong Kong than it is in China. So China, you have digital wallets, you have Alipay, you have Tenpay, Alibaba, Tencent are leading this push. But in Hong Kong, not so much. There's this fintech survey that went out. And one of the things they were pointing to was like, it's very difficult to recruit. Like they can't find young people who want to do this. And one of the theories was that it's just too expensive to be like a startup employee paying the rent. And this is the big thing that everybody notices in Hong Kong is I watch my rent go up by a factor of six, I think. You know, that it's just, it's just insanely expensive. And, and Carrie Lam is out there saying she's got a property plan. I know you wrote about this. Is this something that the government has got a plan for? Or, uh... I mean, I don't, they say they have a plan. But to be honest, you know, property prices in Hong Kong has been an issue for a very long time now. Um, so the, you know, government has tried multiple times to sort of rein in these prices, but they keep hitting new highs, um, particularly this year. Um, you know, and, pro and high real estate prices is a problem in every major city, but for Hong Kong, there are some, you know, unique factors um, that sort of play into the market. So the like first what? is that there is huge demand, both locally and from China. So for foreign investors, Hong Kong is still quite an attractive real estate market, um, you know, in particular for those that want to diversify um, from their local RMB uh, assets. So then there's a lot of uh, investment from China. Uh, the second is that there is a land shortage in Hong Kong, um, so there's not a lot of new uh, housing developments being built, for example. Um, so this has pushed up, you know, property prices for the past year now, and, you know, this has created um, an extremely severe affordability problem. So most of the middle class now can't afford houses. Hong Kong has been ranked the least affordable real estate market in the world. Um, it costs something like 18 years of salary to buy a typical apartment in the city. Um, so this has really, you know, exacerbated sort of unrest and discontent, uh, particularly within the middle class. And, and, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, this is one of the triggers for the pro-democracy protests because yeah, there was a certain like anti-China part of the protest. I Absolutely. mean, there was like a there's there's been the there's the political you know idealism, but there's also just like we don't like mainlanders, which is which has just kind of been been quite striking coming here. Um, seeing this divide, you know, it kind of reminds me of like East and West Germany. You know, they had this metaphor of like this passionate reunion between two lovers who'd been long separated, and then once they actually got to know each other, they. Uh, they found each other quite disappointing. So the social thing has been, well, I digress really, but um, 
I guess the, the part of the frustration is the perception, at least, that this, this housing shortage, this price is policy generated. I mean, you, you, there's tons of land in Hong Kong. I live on Lantau. The whole thing is green. In theory, you could, you could pave that whole thing and, and, and relieve a lot of housing pressure. And there's, there's other policy problems as well. But, I mean, what, what is the government policy that's annoying people so much here? So the government controls quite a lot of the land and they've been quite slow to release new lands and new plots uh, for development. Um, the second policy is that in Hong Kong, the public housing system is completely stretched. But the government has yet, you know, has also dragged its feet on that part, and they've so far underdelivered in their targets for new public housing. Um, so now it just takes uh, years, you know, to get uh, approved and to to be able to be eligible and live in in these public housing units in the city. So we're still 30 years away from the full theoretical integration, the end of one country, two systems to one country, one system. But I mean, in terms of housing and other areas, I mean, some of these, these lease contracts could, in theory, in a couple of years, start stretching over this time, Katrina. I mean, like, how does that play out exactly? What's the policy change investors are looking at here? Yeah, uh, so you asked what had changed in the last two years, and that is quite a big change. As of this summer, it will be less than 30 years between now and 2047 when the basic law could, in theory at least, elapse. And that means that anyone who's looking at entering into a mortgage with a loan term of 30 years, and those do exist in Hong Kong, uh, in fact the average new loan term is 26 years, I have to think very carefully about whether that contract is still going to stand in 2047. How different are the legal systems? I mean, They're extremely different. Uh, what we have in Hong Kong is more like the British system, a common law system, and what we have in China is more like the civil law system that you'd see in the rest of Europe. It's not really possible for Hong Kong to transition to something like that in anything less than decades. Um, at the same time, I mean, it's not certain that there is going to be a change in the legal system in 2047, and there's loads of practical reasons why China might like to see a very, very smooth transition to something almost exactly the same as what we have now. But that's not necessarily enough for investors. It, it could be that there's still a lot of questions about um, small changes. and you have to really ask if you're going to trust contracts at that time. Since we're talking about rule of law, the big area of tension about the quality of Hong Kong's legal institutions has come to focus in, in the stock market. Hong Kong was a huge IPO market. On paper, it's doing really well. You know, It's the gateway to China, so it appears on a lot of metrics to be outperforming Singapore. Um, but you have some concerns over like how, you know, how the whole thing is being regulated and, and how, how high quality the, the infrastructure is behind the markets. Uh, Lisa, what do, you, what do you think? Yes, in every segment of the economy, there's been a progressive mainlandization here in Hong Kong. And this, of course, you know, affects the stock market as well. So 20 years ago, it was just literally you know, a few so-called red chips on the market, but it was definitely Hong Kong companies. I mean, it was felt, you know, it is still today an international marketplace of course but you know it, it was kind of felt probably more international and now uh, you know over the subsequent two decades we've had a massive inflows of IPO funds into the market mainly again you know from from the larger neighbor and this has you know created wealth but is also raising some questions because uh, um, these companies come from a different as we said, um, legal system, I mean, the, the different corporate governance culture and this numerous scorecards that sort of point to the fact that 
and probably China is lagging behind um, other Asian nations and certainly developed markets when it comes to copper guns and all these companies are now um, listed here. I mean, they actually make up two-thirds of the market and if we look at the past five years, 90 f well, around 90% of the IPO funds, again, come from um, China. So just to, to sum this up, I mean, it, this, this wave has brought wealth, but it, it, it's also kind of creating a bit of a culture clash, maybe, which is difficult for the local regulator to, to deal with because, um, you know, obviously the Hong Kong regulator doesn't have extra judiciary powers. You know, it, it kind of can cooperate maybe with, with Chinese regulators if there is a problem, if there is malfeasance, but, you know, it cannot really go into the mainland and and, and seriously chase some of these companies if there is a problem. Well, and also internally, there's a there's a struggle over who's going to control. I mean, specifically listings. I mean, the HK Hong Kong Exchange is for profit entity, and it has actually a fair amount of discretion over who gets to list. And obviously, its commercial interest, you know, is in spurring dynamic listings activity. They're looking at this new board. Um, they're looking at, at all sorts of ways to kind of. You know, juice aboard that's seen as being a little bit stodgy compared to, like, you know, say Shenzhen, you know, which is full of these sexy biotech firms. Hong Kong is seen, correctly or not, as you know, finance and real estate. But I mean, their 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 attention with the SFC, which is you know wants more control over that. How is that struggle playing out? So I I would say that obviously um, yes, you're you're right at pointing that there is a conflict, if you want, between the stock exchange which has some regulatory powers in particular when it comes to the vetting of companies that need to be listed and the SFC which is the overall markets regulator but this predates uh, if you want the, the handover. I mean this is a, a situation that's been developed over time and it's kind of very specific to Hong Kong. I mean I, I wouldn't say that it has anything to do with the sort of influx of the mainland. To, to your other point, however, which is, is quite important, I mean, there is a sense here in Hong Kong, and this sense, I mean, is, is, is very strong at the level of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, that um, the companies listed here are um, mostly, let's say, old economy companies. So there's a lot of banks, there's a lot of developers, you know, there, there's conglomerates, and, you know, Hong Kong has not been able to capture any of this you know, sexy new economy giants, in particular Alibaba. I mean, uh, you know, Hong Kong was not able to attract Alibaba here, again, because of uh, a clash, you know, if you, if you want, maybe, of views on, on whether or not uh, uh, different voting rights should be allowed. I mean, the SFC doesn't want any of that in Hong Kong, or at least did not want it at the time, and that's why um, Alibaba was lost. Um, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange is now trying to maybe change its tack and creating a new board with some flexible rules so that it can maybe woo some of these, uh, um, let's say, sexist Chinese listings and potentially, you know, have Alibaba or some others who are now listed in the U.S. come here for a secondary listing. And, and, and in this way, maybe kind of ensure a more lucrative, if you want, or more, um, more rewards, you know, for the shareholders because the um, the valuations of the Hong Kong stock market are actually lower compared to several um, venues around the world. Right. Well, Quentin, is it, how do you feel that Hong Kong stacks up relative to the competition um, in terms of its efforts in this, in this area? Well, I think the cliche would be something like, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So <laughs> there's a general feeling that governance across Asia is not very good. And in the Asian Corporate Governance Association's last 
survey, they compared all of these markets against Australia, which they do not consider to be part of Asia proper. Mm. And Australia has a much better kind of set of governance rankings. Um, among the Asian markets, actually both Singapore and Hong Kong do relatively well. Um, but there's a feeling that the momentum is either downwards or stagnant, whereas places like Japan and to a lesser extent Korea have started from a low base and have made determined efforts in the last few years to improve the quality of their governance. One of the key things about Hong Kong and this global financial market is attractiveness you know, to foreign talent, that if you want, you, you can have your domestic market like, like Tokyo or whatever, and that's fine. But if you want foreigners, it has to be someplace where bankers want to come and work, and the people who want to work with bankers or around bankers want to come and work, and that means, you know, English levels are, are good, uh, you know, the policy environment and taxation is welcoming. You guys have all been here. I mean, is it getting more or less welcoming for foreigners? Because I personally felt that, like, when I was in China, in Shanghai, it was getting less and less welcoming, that the, the welcome rug was definitely being rolled up, and I was just wondering. I'd like to say something to this end, if I may. I mean, for a start, I, mean, I, I think there's maybe a bit of a misconception of how international Hong Kong effectively is, because if you look at let's say non-Chinese, it's only 5% of the population and this is like a very low number if you compare it maybe with places like London and New York where, you know, sure. the share of the, the non-sort of local, if you, if you want, population is higher. Uh, at the same time, as Robin was discussing in her piece, you know, about the uh, real estate prices, I mean, they're getting higher and they're getting higher not just for the Hong Kongers but for everyone who comes and lives here and we know that the packages that are offered even by international companies are shrinking and you know are nowhere near what they used to be um, in the past because of you know various rounds of crisis so um, although you know the city of course is vibrant appealing you know offers opportunities it is possibly becoming a slightly tougher place to live in um, compared than what it was in the past I mean I, I'd like to obviously hear what others I think, uh, think about I think um, what you say is very true, but I think you also need to think about um, the business environment. And if you look at Hong Kong compared with mainland China, maybe compared with Japan as well, I think uh, the business environment and the community is still very cosmopolitan. And there's certain important bits of infrastructure, like stock market filings, um, legal documents and so on, that are in English. And that is... Um, a huge help, <laughs> should we say, for cosmopolitan business people who aren't necessarily fluent in Mandarin or um, Cantonese. Yeah, and it's interesting that there's, you know, what's striking about Hong Kong to me is that, like, you have these people who have been here their whole lives. You know, you have foreigners who are born in Hong Kong hospitals. You know, they're going to retire here. They have houses here. They have lives and cultures here. They might be a small part of the population, but there's definitely a place for them. There is no such place in China. Like, nobody is supposed to be there and retiring, getting a, a permanent residency. I mean, maybe China might change its mind about this later, but, you know, the message that Xi is sending when he comes here is that, like, this is part of the Chinese national project. We've got one country, two systems, but the main thing is that Hong Kongers, you know, identify with and love and become patriotic Chinese people. I mean, there are some other strange worrying signs. I mean, I, apparently there's been a, a crackdown on immigrants, like, uh, from... Southeast Asia and Africa and Hong Kong, there's been this kind of, that's another distinguishing thing, like, you know, China, when they say Shanghai is international, it's Chinese people and Westerners, basically. Um, you do not have a massive, visible South Southeast Asian population, you have very few Africans, so on and so forth, but Hong Kong at least has that kind of diversity, but it does seem that uh, 
that it, that it might be at risk. Um, but we'll see. But agreed, right now it's 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 easier. I mean, my friend just visited me. He'd never been to Asia before. You know, I bring him to to Hong Kong. And he's like, okay, but I need to see real Asia. Like, this is too easy. I could just bring my family here. It'd be fine. Like, I, I, I want to go see something crazy with, like, you know, uh, <laughs> scooters and donkeys or something. You know? Maybe just in addition to what um, was just said, I mean, one thing, one sign, at least, that um, is potentially worrying and we've written about it is the uh, perception that the rule of law, which is quite key and very distinct trait of Hong Kong as a, as a marketplace, as an international center, um, is possibly weakening. I mean, we, we've had this case of the uh, abducted booksellers, so a group of booksellers uh, that were publishing um, books slightly critical of, of, the, of the regime were um, taken away, I mean, the, the, into the mainland for questioning. And, and, and this whole case, um, you know, has, has really shaken um, the population here. People talk about it because it was obviously um, done out of the rule of law, which right. is, you know, what people um, connect with when they think of Hong Kong. Uh, and, and I know everybody's really concerned about that, but and, and but to be fair to be Hong Kong, like people also got snatched in Thailand. Um, if you want to worry about like aggressive, you know, Chinese secret services going after perceived enemies of the states, it's not limited to Hong Kong. And you see the coverage of what's happening in Australia, rightly or wrongly, seems very intimidating. Um, certainly during the anti-corruption campaign, American legislators were getting very worried about Chinese policemen from Province X, you know, getting tourist visas, going over in plain clothes and going and banging on doors in, in California and whatnot, looking after people. Um, so that, you know, I mean, certainly Hong Kong is particularly on the receiving end of that. But, I mean, what I thought was more worrying for the foreigners, at least, was the uh, during the stock market crash when the CSRC was trying to go after foreigners who were shorting Chinese shares listed overseas, and they were trying to get records from Hong Kong regulators, you know, and that, you know, that would rattle people. And it kind of begs the question, because we were talking about, like, this bond connect, and, you know, I wrote about, you know, kind of these pilot programs that are connecting, you know, the stock markets and everything to, to mainland ones, but people who think that they're going to trade out of Hong Kong and, like, adopt funky short strategies or, or something like that and think that, like, they're safe behind some Hong Kong wall, you know, that, that's, that's a questionable... Thing now, I think after after last year. All right. Well, before we conclude, maybe just briefly, let, let's talk about the the good things that Hong Kong has has held on to. Twenty years. I mean, I I personally enjoy, you know, a, a lot of the the way that Hong Kong keeps itself up. Uh, you know, the the infrastructure seems to be maintained. I love how they have like the 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 flood what, what the landslide control on the on the little numbers for each hill slope so they can easily find stuff. It seems like it's still got this kind of fundamental core of organization and attitude. Am I, am I wrong? What, what else is going right? Well, <laughs> I think it's lost some of its power as a, a kind of cultural powerhouse. I think mm. maybe 20 years ago it was where Korea is now. Everyone was watching kind of Hong Kong movies and so on. It's lost some of that, but for me, a good Hong Kong gangster film is still a work of wonder. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think it's been a very lucky place and somehow that in many ways has continued to hold I mean just looking at something like one country two systems you think about when that happens there was this tiny window between China opening up and China becoming such an economic powerhouse that it would be very hard to say no to anything China wanted and that was when this agreement was negotiated and it allowed Hong Kong all kinds of freedoms that I don't think we would have enjoyed otherwise so Hong Kong's a very lucky place. And 
it's how that holds. Lisa, you're getting ready to head yeah, to Italy I mean, next. What are you going to miss about well, Hong I'm Kong, having, the, having raised a family here? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to miss the beauty of the place because actually it is a city of stark contrast. I mean, it's the most densely populated city in the world and at the same time, you know, it has very large chunks of uh, unspoiled jungle and, and beaches that, you know, uh, visitors whizzing through it quickly may not uh, be able to see and, you know, um, was lucky enough to enjoy that. So it, it still has this uh, quality of life, if you want, uh, somehow that uh, is difficult to find elsewhere. It's also a very safe city, which again, coming from Europe, I treasured. And, you know, it's a kind of hassle-free, you know, very, very low red tape, um, which again, you know, uh, in the West normally um, is, um, is, is, is a difficulty. So that uh, I'm definitely going to miss when I go back to Europe. Well, I'll just say for my part that, you know, I think one of the things that's gone well here is that, like, as far as China is concerned, you know, the Hong Kong system has served it very well and continues to do so. I think that Beijing realizes even more than before the value of having, you know, this society structure the way it is as a place where you can launch things like Bond Connect, keeping in mind that, you know, a lot of these, these stock connector programs were launched after failed attempts to do it on the mainland. You know, all this talk about you know, making Shanghai supersede Hong Kong and throwing all this policy support behind it. That didn't happen. You know, Beijing has tried to keep, uh, you know, Hong Kong viable. Um, now, certainly it doesn't want, you know, some of these, its political anxieties in, in Hong Kong are one thing. But, like, in terms of, like, trying to overthrow this and turn it into a second-tier city, I don't think China wants that. I think they've seen what their second-tier markets look like. They don't want Hong Kong to look like that because behind Hong Kong, you know, you're stuck with New York. You know, like, they don't want Alibaba and these companies going to New York. They want, you know, Hong Kong and, and, a, and a Chinese version of New York here. And it is not in their interest to screw it up. If they do it, it will be by accident because they're clumsy, because, you know, the bureaucrats in Beijing don't understand what's going on here or some factional struggle. Keep in mind that China has vastly other, other problems, to, bigger problems to deal with than, than Hong Kong protests. But, but even so, I mean, fundamentally, you know, I, I don't want to say I'm optimistic, but, like, that has worked out well. Um, I, I think that Hong Kong should not assume, or people investing here should not assume that China is about to roll the tanks through and, and fill the place with secret police. I think they want it to work. I think they're struggling to make it work, uh, but overall, I, let's, let's, let's hope they do pull it off. Anyways, thanks for listening to everybody, um, and again, check out our special edition on the Hong Kong tab. You can see all our articles at detail uh, with graphics, the stuff we've been talking about verbally here, and thanks for listening. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our colleagues in Asia. And also thanks to our producers, Bethel Hopday and Andrew D'Antonio. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Do share your opinions about our show. Tune in next week for another episode of the Views Room. Thanks for joining us.